If you have a Bible, and you do because there's one in the pew in front of you, I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 13. It's our, if, the, if, the, if you need a cheat, it's page 1577 in the, in the pew Bible. And just act like you knew that anyway. I know where Mark is. I'm going to attempt to do the whole chapter. And I, okay, I know you probably think that's crazy because I just spent three weeks doing the second half of chapter 12, but I think it can work. So we're just going to have to get at it is all. So let's go ahead and read. Read the passage. This is Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter. As he, Jesus, was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time... Men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and from the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. And even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. 
This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells each one that, at, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly. Do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. There's obviously a number of stuff in that passage I'm not going to cover today. Um, And if you're interested, I just encourage you to come look at the videos. There'll be a video called Second Pass where I'll cover some detail I didn't get to today on the website. I I think that um, it ought to be obvious from reading that passage there's a bit of a theme and the theme in that passage is watchfulness, right? That when it relates to how we interact with the future, how we think about time that has not yet come to us, one of the key ideas Jesus is telling all of his disciples, remember what he said at the end? He said, what I say to you, I say to who? Everyone. Be watchful. Be watchful. So to faithfulness in relationship to what's coming is watchfulness, okay? Faithfulness is watchfulness. Okay, I don't know about you, I am terrible at watchfulness. When I was in seminary, one of the things I did to pay the bills, seminarians are always looking for jobs where they can get paid for doing nothing. So I I probably should say humans there, but I'll just say seminarians. And, um, And here's the reason, is we've got to figure out how to study like 20 hours in a day and also not go bankrupt, Right? And not have so much personal debt that no church can afford to hire us. And so I got a job at a secu- as a security guard at this business called Hewitt Associates in Chicago, which basically you sit around for two and a half hours, and then you get up and you walk around the building and make sure all the right lights are on and nothing's burning. Um, <clears throat> the problem is, and I didn't know this at the time, um, but I have, for my whole adulthood, had a form of ADD that instead of having um, tendencies towards hyperactivity— it actually has tendencies towards narcolepsy. So I have this kind of weird form of narcolepsy. Um, if some of you have noticed, you've come in for counseling and like we're talking and I have to get up and go get a Coke or something. Like that's because I'm falling, like I, I'm just falling asleep and there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm, I need to drink something or stand up or I'm just going down. And um, so now a lot of you are probably never gonna come in for counseling. I do stay awake. <laughs> and, and there are helpful pharmaceuticals. But so uh, the whole point of this, the whole point of this job, okay, if you're a security guard, there's basically one point to your job, right? Be awake. Okay, that's it. That's your whole job. Be awake. And so I would go there, and so I was part-time, and my shifts would switch. So one shift would be second shift, so it would be like three in the afternoon till 11 at night, and then the next one, it would be the graveyard shift, right? And so there's just no way to get on that cycle if you're part-time. And so I'd go in for that third shift, and there's just no way. And I'd like, so—and I'm, so I'm trying to study. So I'm trying to read theology textbooks at 2 a.m., okay, to get through this. And so, like, I would literally—I would wake up with 
a highlighter stain this big on my shirt, saturated. I'd be like, I'd be like, you know, and like the thing would be drained entirely. It'd be empty. I just bought it, you know, that kind of thing. I'm terrible at being, at being a watchman. Um, and and here's, here's what we know. Turns out that's human. Turns out that's human. If you remember the three-part series we just did um, on chapter 12, one of the things that's the theme of chapter 12 in Mark's gospel is that that was the huge failure of all the Jewish leaders in relationship to the temple. That's why the temple was being judged. It's why the priesthoods were being judged. It's why the temple is—Jesus prophesies here that the temple is going to be totally destroyed. It's all going to go away. Why? Because a sufficient level of just absolute corruption has come into this religious community and just undone it from the inside out because the leaders who are supposed to oversee the purity of that community and to make sure that it was serving God and not men and that they were seeking humility, not power, and that they were, had been insufficient and it had been lost. And so watchfulness had not succeeded. Now, at the end of chapter 13 and chapter 14 is the, what we call the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, what does he tell his disciples to do? Those of you who are churchgoers and have been, he says what? Watch and pray, right? So he, so he goes, hey, okay, can, and, then, and then what happens? Do they do a good job? No, right? And these are the disciples. These are supposed to be like the varsity level students, right? And they do not make it, right? Um, let's see where we are slide-wise. Okay, so here's what, I, here's what I think we need to recognize. If being a bad watchman is normal, if it's the normal way religious communities go in relationship to truth and humility and um, true righteousness rather than self-righteousness, if, if true spirituality, watchfulness over our own souls and watchfulness towards what God is doing in the world— we tend to be bad at it. And if it's just normally human that we're not very attentive about a lot of things, then I, I want to ask two questions this morning. The first is, is why are we bad watchmen? And the second one is, um, how do we become spiritually alert and watchful? Because apparently Jesus thinks this is really important. So how do we do that? So the first thing is, why are we a bad watchman? And I want to suggest that essentially the reason we're a bad watchman is because there is an essential contrast in our thinking that's wrong. And it's just totally normal, but that doesn't make it less false. That's the thing about things we all believe that are false. And that main contrast is this, that there are many, many great things around us that are neither good nor permanent. They, they have amazing grandeur. They look like enormous accomplishments. And in some, in some sense, they are enormous accomplishments— but when it comes right down to how things are going to end up, they're just not. They're neither good, grand, or permanent. And the greatest things and the eternal things, the truly permanent, usually come by really ordinary means. They don't look great, and so they're really easily overlooked. And if, if that's, that's normal human thinking, normal human thinking is to be enamored with great things that according to Jesus aren't particularly good or permanent, and to not notice the truly great and eternal things because they seem ordinary at this moment. And Jesus says that in the, these two verses, right at the beginning. Now, one of the things that a lot of people say is, now, you know, chapter 13 is about how the end is going to happen. And in some ways, there is, some, there is stuff in chapter 13 about how the end is going to happen. There's more in Matthew 
23 than here, but, or 24 than here. But there's some, but remember the point of this chapter is Jesus says the temple's gonna get destroyed. And when the disciples ask him, they don't say, what's the end of the world? They, they, they say, when is this gonna happen? I.e., when is this great building gonna get destroyed? How's, how's that gonna come about? That's the focus. And so the chapter starts out like this. As they were leaving the temple, the disciples said, look, teacher, what ma- massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, no stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, here's what you, here's what you need to know about Herod's temple. <clears throat> okay? If you were to read the Torah in the, in the Old Testament of the Bible, you would get a feeling that the Jewish temple was not that big a deal. I mean, when, when God gave the commands to start out with, he basically said a tent was going to be okay. Right? Like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like, if I'm dating a girl and she was like, listen, I'd like to have a, a nice house, you know, when we get married and have a family, but you know, if all we can afford is a tent, you know, that's okay. I would think low maintenance woman. Check. <laughs> right? You know, my wife is pretty low maintenance, but she never said that. But God said that. God's like, you know, we're going to build a temple here eventually, but, you know, while you're wandering in the desert, we'll just do a tent. Not that big a deal, but here's how I want it to be. It's got to be laid out like this, because—why? Because these things represent something real, and so it's got to be like this. But, you know, sheepskins, whatever. Let's just, you know. And I'll, I'll inspire an artist. It'll be nice, but Herod the Great did not feel that way. Herod the Great did not agree with God that the Jewish temple should be just normal. He was a nutcase, okay? This is a guy who killed two of his own sons. He was crazy, okay? This is a guy who built castles out in the middle of the desert on hills that you can only get to by trolley cars, okay, in the modern world. That took the Romans like seven years to build up a ramp to go kill everybody in it, okay? That, I mean, this is the kind of person Herod was. And he engaged in a 50-year building program on the temple after it was already built. So back in the Old Testament, remember, Nehemiah and Ezra and this generation comes back from Babylon and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. There was a temple. It was already there. It worked just fine. Now it wasn't particularly great, but Herod was like, I'm the greatest king who's ever lived in the history of the world. I am going to make this the greatest spectacle that has ever lived. And he did. The Jewish temple, after the Herod building program, by all accounts that we know, was the greatest building in the ancient world, period, full stop. I mean, I imagine you could argue that because there's multiple pyramids, that they sort of went out by numerics, but you need to—because when you think that if you learned in school the wonders of the ancient world, right, you didn't cover Herod's temple. And here's why. It wasn't around very long, but it was amazing. Um, Josephus, who was, a, who was a writer, a Roman writer, actually a Jewish Roman writer, which makes it a little interesting, that at the end of this 50-year building campaign, okay, the temple platform, which is like, you understand, the temple is built on the top of a mountain where the top of the mountain isn't very big. So basically, they decided to build the top of a mountain flat. Okay, that's what they did. It was about a mile in circumference, just the platform of stone that they build could accommodate 12 football fields. Okay? Tw- 12 football fields. And the stones that they brought in, they didn't just, you know, do some masonry. They cut stones that were 40 feet long by 11 feet by 14 feet, weighed well over a million pounds. 
to bring. And that was just the foundation. It was just the foundation. And then they built the temple. This is, this is sort of like a imagining of it because nobody knows exactly what it looked like because it didn't last. But Herod had this idea that he was going to be the grandest and most permanent of the earth's kings. And he was going to build the grandest and most permanent of the earth's buildings. And he did. And the disciples were really taken with it, right? They come out and they're like, Jesus, man, look at this place. It's unbelievable. And what does Jesus reply is? Yeah. He, I mean, he acknowledges that it's a great building, right? He says, you see these great buildings? They're not going to be here for very long. They're, they're all coming down. You see this, you see the shiny. I mean, they were reflecting pools and like, I mean, gold and silver platings. I mean, and he's like, you see all this? It's all going to go away. And it's all going to go away in this generation. It's not going to last. It's not even going to last as long as it took to build it. Now that's a failure, right? You know, when, when something you build doesn't last as long as it took you to build it, that's generally considered, you know, bad management. But that's exactly what happened. But, but here, and here's what we need, to, we need to see, that Jesus was more interested in the true nature and the fate of the thing rather than what it looked like. What he knew was that that amazing temple, what was it? What did Jesus call it? A den of robbers. It was a thieves' guild. It was a thieves' guild in cohort with the government that was stealing from God's people and leading them, leading them astray. And it was real pretty. That's what Jesus saw. That was its real nature. And then he said, because of that, it's going down, guys. Now, here's the reason why I kind of belabor that point a little bit. Not so that I can make this a two-part series. But, um, turns out, um, we are like that. Turns out that we get really enamored with stuff that's right in front of our face, that seems important, that seems interesting, that seems sort of hip and now— and we don't see the real nature of things and the real likely fate of those things. Um, when, I was in, when I was in college, I had a roommate that loved the band Pearl Jam. Okay? A lot of you who are probably under 30 have never even heard of the band Pearl Jam. Um, in, in 1995 or 6, when my roommate got this tattooed on the side of his ankle— um, in remembrance of the greatness of this band, um, they were already kind of on the downhill— and most people have now never heard of them. Now, I suppose if he became a Christian, he could argue that this is some kind of idea of worship or something, since virtually nobody now recognizes this symbol. But, I mean, I remember thinking then, this is, that's not going to be cool in fact. In fact, my big theological argument against tattoos in most cases isn't that they're wrong. It's cool. You want to get a tattoo? Get a tattoo. I just don't know. I can't, I could never think of what I could put on my body that I really would think was cool when I was 50. That's all. That's all. I don't think there's a Bible command against it, right? But, or one of the things that I, that I noticed is that um, I got in trouble at my last church because I think I said, I think I said from the pulpit that if you have a subscription to People Magazine, you're shallow. And you sh- ter- turns out you shouldn't say that. Um, partly because it's not true, necessarily. And... Um, <laughs> It's just likely. And it turns out my wife's best friend had a subscription to People magazine. And, um, but, but I, you know, my th- deal was always like, 
let's, let's go over what we've learned. You know, we've, we've learned Lindsay Lohan has a drug habit, you know? You know, we, we've learned that, um, you know, Tiger Woods' ex-wife is going to have a hard time spending all his money, you know? Uh, we've learned that apparently if you put two angst-filled teenagers in a movie and give them the same color contact lenses, people will not think of the fact that a 150-year-old being would never find a 17-year-old interesting. <laughs> Okay? That's just ridiculous. Um, but, in fact, in fact here, here's, my, here's my advice about buying magazines in general. If you can buy them in the checkout line, it's probably a bad purchase. It's probably a bad purchase. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's not from the Bible. That's just my opinion, okay? But I'm just saying. And, and, and that's because virtually nothing in this, that sort of magazine matters next week. Almost nothing that's on, like, no kidding, news stations is going to be history, is going to matter in terms of how we understand the world, in terms of the way we think and the way we act. It just doesn't matter. They're all flashes in the pans, and it's all for sale, and virtually none of it counts. And, um, We'd just be better off reading a good book. But, but here's, here's what this come down, comes down to is, what, what has got your attention? What is the thing that's shiny and reflecty? What's the, what are the things in your soul and in the, your world that capture your attention because they're big, they're shiny, and you want to turn to Jesus and you want to go, Jesus, look at that! And he's just not interested. He's like, listen, it's not going to last. It's just not going to last. It's not going anywhere. There's nothing noble about it. It's not going to last. It's not important. I don't know why you think this is such a big deal, right? I mean, some examples. Youth and health. How attached are you to your health and your youth? How big and shiny and grand and attention-getting is that? Because there is nothing more desperate, no person more desperately behaving than a person terrified to lose their youth and their health. And we're all gonna. What about your life stage identity? Because it's going to change, right? Like, I'm a dad. I'm a dad of young kids. How linked is my identity to that? How shiny is that for me? How defining is that for who I am? Because guess what? I'm not going to be a dad of young kids for very long. Ten years is going to go by like that. Are you single and free? Fantastic. That's that's great. And listen, and you may stay single and free. Whatever. That's cool. But— it may not have the shine it has now in 20 minutes. You know? Like, my, when my wife leaves, after about three days, I'm kind of like, what the heck is going on? Where are all the people? But, but the, the, the issue then becomes, what happens to your identity if that's your idea, that's the shiny thing that defines you, that's who you are, and then it just goes away because it's not permanent. It's not eternal, right? Or what about the unprecedented prosperity of our culture that could largely go away in 20 years? There's no reason it can't. 
I mean, some of us don't realize we live in a blip in history that is completely unprecedented, very odd, and strangely long-enduring. You know, all the repetitives of history would say, this is not going to last a lot longer. What are you going to do? Now, look, it may never happen. You may be wealthy the rest of your life. Your kids might be wealthy. We may all just invent some great thing and just all be rich for another generation. And that would be cool. But what if the temple of your prosperity got torn to the ground? What would that do to you? Are you ready for that? I mean, is, do you think that it's enduring? And will you get offended at God if he decides to tear it down? Or, I mean, even for me, just, just straight up technology. Talk about getting your attention. I got one of those little, like, John had his iPad up here today. I've got those little Motorola Zooms just because I just can't, I won't do Apple because I'm prejudiced. And I don't care if they make a better product. Not doing it. I'm, so I'm just kidding. That's it's supposed to be ironic. Sorry. Um, and, uh, but I think technology is really cool. I mean, I love the stuff we can do now. I mean, people can say all they want about, oh, it was, used to be quieter. Yeah, and I couldn't call anybody. True. I mean, like, I'm from the—I used to have a phone this big in my car because my parents wanted to know where I was at 2 a.m. Now, you can just text them. You don't even have to talk to them. I, I don't actually tell my parents where I am anymore at 2 a.m., just so you know. But I, I really like what technology, particularly medical technology, is capable of doing. My son had an amazing hip surgery, and, and they broke his legs, and they twisted stuff around and put him in casts, and they couldn't have done that 20 years ago. I love technology, but, but talk about a shining building that we will sell our souls for. Cable television. <laughs> right? A faster Netflix connection. Mobile movie-watching apps on larger screen phones. I mean, these things shine like crazy. And if we don't have a—if we don't see ourselves as watchmen who are disciplined and trained, and we are like—what is a watchman? A watchman is a soldier. We are well within the camp of the military metaphor, which is a big part of— New Testament Christianity. They're trained, they're disciplined, they're ready, they're alert, they're attentive, they know what danger is, they know where it might come from, they're ready for it, they know what people normally fall into so they don't make those mistakes. In military training, what do you study as much as successes? Failures, right? You don't just study the great victories. You know, you, you, you study Vero against Hannibal and you're like, that guy was nutty, what did he do wrong? He lost 90,000 men, right? You just go, and, and a watchman knows that. He knows what the last watchman did wrong. That's why he's in the job. Right? And if we don't see ourselves as that, right? If we don't see ourselves as somehow occupying the true metaphorical place of a watchman in our own Christian lives— observing not just the world around us, but the sin regrowing in our own hearts that we haven't done a consistent job of killing— we are going to find ourselves surprised when Jesus tears down the shiny temple we've gotten ourselves attached to because he's just interested in something else. A good preacher would stop there and pray, but let's go on to the second question. (laughs) 
Second is, how, okay, if, that, if it's so important to get that straight in our heads and to be watchful as a watchman or watchwoman, then the second question has got to be, how do we do that? Are there markers? Are there, is there advice in this passage that tells us how to do that? And I'm going to go over just four. There's like 50, okay? I'm just going to do four quick ones. The first is to be alert for deception. If you want to break into a city, you're going to put sleepers in the city that are going to talk to the, you know, like you're going to do some kind of, something kind of, because nobody's going to, you don't just march your men up to the front door and go, hey, hey, can we come in? Don't mind the swords. <laughs> you know, what's the airspeed velocity to unladen swallow? I mean, these kinds of things. And so, um, that was a Monty Python joke for those of you old enough and strange enough. Um, the point is, is that cities do not fall for frontal attacks usually. I mean, watchmen are, are not just watching down the road leading to the city, right? They're generating light. They're looking around. They're trying to figure out. And one of the first things Jesus says when he starts out, he says, listen, you want to know how this is going to happen? You want to know what you need to know? Here's what you need to know. Watch out. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and they will deceive many. Listen, Look, I know that the evangelical church in America has had kind of this fight and fundy past, okay? And it was real negative, and so everything's wrong, and the Christians are like, everything's wrong! Everything you're saying is wrong! We're better than you! And, and we're all, we all kind of grew up going, I don't think I want to be like them. They're kind of angry. And um, so we kind of did that. We decided to do the positive thing. So we're like, everything, you know, everything's cool. What's up? You know, I'm, I like going to movies and whatever and wearing skirts above my, you know, thigh and cussing and whatever. Like, we can do that stuff. And some of that stuff you can do. Probably, you should probably watch the cussing because that, you know, whatever. We'll talk about that another, when we talk about Ephesians. But, um, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of truth to that, right? There's a, there's a lot of cranking down and fundamentalism had some issues in terms of Anyway, that's all. But here's, here's what, it, what it created was a phenomenon of, well, let's just be free. I mean, let's just, if we have freedom in Christ, let's just, you know, whatever. And we, and we stopped talking about some things as a church, didn't we? We stopped talking about some things. Um, for 2,000 years, the church talked about this thing called worldliness. Worldliness. Ever, anybody ever heard of that? Worldliness? Haven't said much about that, have we? for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? The whole idea that there are two cities. There's the city of God. There's the city of man. They're intermingled. There is, there's a fundamental difference between the two, and there is such a thing as being worldly, not in the sense of like, I can walk down the street and not get mugged, right? That's not what, that's not what it meant. It meant just opening your arms wide open and saying, oh, just come on in. I just want it all. We stopped talking about that. We stopped talking about this thing, Christian discipline called discernment. Have you heard a lot about that in the last 20 years in the Christian church? Not in churches, not in churches that are like, you know, nice music, positive preaching, hey, what's up, you know? Not a lot of talk about discernment. Not a lot of talk about the kinds of things that a soldier needs. In fact, we haven't heard very much about the soldier metaphor in the New Testament at all. I, mean, I bet there's somebody sitting here this morning who had no idea that was even in the Bible. And you're like, that's a little violent, isn't it? You know, next thing you know, you're going to say that Christian parents should let their kids play with guns or something. 
The soldier metaphor is in the Bible, and one of the reasons I think it's so important that it's in there is because the military is one of the, is one of the places, it's so totally clear that if you don't do your job, people die. Period. If you don't do your job, people die. And there's not a lot of jobs like that. You know? Most of you don't have jobs where if, if, you, just die, if you just don't do your job, somebody dies. Boom. Some nurses, maybe. We might have some people that it's— But for most of us, people don't just die, okay? In the military, one person doesn't do their job, and a lot of people can die. So it's a useful metaphor. Let nobody deceive you. Listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to accept this idea. There are things in the world that are not true. There are things in the world that Jesus has told us that— are con- contrary to a lot of other things we really want to believe emotionally and that lots of people want to tell us. And if we don't know the difference, we can't be a good watchman. That, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we study our Bibles. That's one of the reasons we go to adult Bible fellowship classes. That's one of the reasons we go to small groups. That's one of the reasons there's a bazillion Christian books, most of them bad, but a lot of them good out there for us to read. There, 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 that's the reason we have preaching. That's the reason I don't preach 15 minutes. That's the reason why we deliver content. Because knowing the truth and being able to distinguish between what to believe in and what not to believe in is important. And in some cases, those lines of distinction are actually kind of subtle. Like, I mean, just think about the last time you got bullied about what love is. Well, Christians are supposed to be loving, aren't, aren't, aren't they? Yeah. Well, then you have to accept X. Well, if you don't know, like, how to— Talk about, like, how to think about love in relationship to truth and how some of these things go to—you can't—you just feel pushed back on. And you can only get through that if you, if you got a full-orbed-out biblical doctrine of what God's love means. Okay, I kind of belabored that one a little bit. Let's keep moving. Be prepared to suffer for the gospel. Okay, and listen, I talk about suffering a pretty good bit because it's basically everywhere in the Bible. And Jesus talks about it everywhere. The apostles talk about it everywhere. Um, but but here's, the, here's the key thing to, to see in this passage. This passage is not talking about suffering in general. It is talking about suffering for the message of the gospel in particular. He's not saying you're going to get cancer. You need to believe in Jesus in a way that you're prepared for that and that you can walk with Jesus through your cancer rather than pitching Jesus and going alone into your cancer or your divorce or your job loss or you're raising a buck nuts kid or whatever. Okay? That's not the kind of—that's not the suffering talk that's being handled. Here he's saying is, if you are a Christian and you open your mouth, there will be times, and for you guys, imminently, that— in the words of Jesus, all men will hate you, will hate you because of me. They will hate you because of me. Now, that's different than you just being, us being just annoying because we think we should be as Christians, okay? There's a difference between being self-righteous and being annoying and being arrogant and being narrow and being things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is Jesus is Lord. And if you just simply believe that, and in anything Jesus actually said, people will not like you. And in some cases, they just won't like you. In some cases, they just won't talk to you at work the same as way they, they talk to other people. In some cases, they'll talk behind your back. 
in, in some cases, they'll constantly try to pull you into what they're in because they don't like that you're kind of out there and they feel judged and whatever, so they want to—they'll they'll pull the, the, the office gossip to you to try to pull you into that. Because they just don't like it. They don't like the fact that you're standing on the outside of it. It's uncomfortable. Some of it will just be like that. And for most of us, that's what we're struggling with, right? It's stuff like that. And Jesus is saying, yeah, they're gonna—some people are gonna kill you. They'll, say, they'll kill you. I mean, what Jesus is saying is it goes a lot further and a lot deeper than that. And listen, if you're going to be a watchman, you better be ready. You must be on your guard. You must be. You must be on your guard. That's all I'm going to say about that. So this isn't a three-part sermon. The third is we need to know something about the results, the end. Right? He's, there, there are some, there's some talk here about the end of the world, like, you know, what's going to happen in the future? This whole question of what's going to happen in the future. Not necessarily just the end of the world and the return of Jesus. That's part of it. But it's just what's going to happen in the future. And we need to know something about that. Okay? Now, one of the things that— one of the statements in the passage we read was the, the passage said, the abomination that causes desolation. Did you, you guys remember that? Do I, I don't think I have that passage. Nope. It says this, Mark 13, 14 to 23. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on his roof even go to his house to take anything out of there. Okay, now, there's some argument about what that is exactly. Um, and I don't want to argue that I know everything about this. Okay, so let me just say that up front. But— I think it's the destruction of the Jewish, of the Jewish temple in, in 70. And I think there might be something else coming, and I think Matthew talks more about that. But abomination that causes desolation is basically something that's really offensive that creates war. That's what that means, okay? And so you could have a number of abominations that cause desolation, right? Any huge offense that creates war can create that kind of thing. But th- these guys have specifically asked, when will these things happen? Meaning, when will th- this temple that's so amazing end up no stone left— Undestroyed. That's what they're asking about. And he said, listen, when, they, when this happens, you guys need to go. Okay? You need to go. And I'm not talking about even just Jerusalem. He's like, the whole area of Judea, you need to get out. Okay? So be watching for it, because something's going to happen. There's going to be some kind of offense. That offense is going to create war. And when that happens, do not listen to people saying, I am the Messiah. I can defeat this army. Because you are going to die. You need to go. And that, listen, it's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Exactly what happened. The, the Jewish people, um, there were some leaders among them that said, forget the Romans, we're going to be free. And the Romans had just had enough. They had just had enough. And they sent Titus, this general, with his legions. And Titus had a very smart plan. He said, I am, he did not want to lay siege to Jerusalem for two years. Right? He wanted to go home and see his wife and be a champion and have everybody worship him and build an ark in his glory. If you go to Rome today, today, to the Roman Forum, there's, what, three or four arks, and one of them is the Ark of Titus from the destruction of the Jewish temple, one of the greatest victories and the greatness and glory of Rome, right? That's what he wanted. He wanted his parade. And so here's what he said. He said, I'll go during Passover. The population of Jerusalem will go from 200,000 to a million. They'll be—they'll be—they'll they'll sacrifice 10, 15, 20,000 animals. So there'll be all kinds of guts and blood and whatever in the city. And there'll be all these people, and I'll seal the city. 
and there won't be anywhere near enough provisions for them. They'll have all these carcasses of animals they can't even get rid of, and the population density will be so tight that we'll get pestilence and plague in no time. So that's what he did. He waited till the Jewish people came in, and he was kind of up, you know, hanging around here, and, they, and then he sent people to surround the city so nobody could get out, and then the whole legion came in and surrounded the city, and there was plague, and there was famine very, in a very short period of time, and they killed everyone. They killed everyone. Josephus, the, the, the guy who wrote the history of the, of the Jewish wars, his estimate was 1.1 million. They're, they're, Josephus wrote that when the Romans, because the Romans weren't just there to kill the people, they were, they were told to destroy everything. The, the Roman emperor said, I want Jerusalem to be unrecognizable that there was ever a city there. I want that heap of dirt to look totally uninhabited. Do not come back to Rome until that's done. And so they had to burn everything. They had to destroy the walls. They had to pull every stone down. And, and, they, and they, Josephus said they couldn't burn down a lot of the houses because there was so much blood in the streets that the, house, the houses were, were saturated with human blood and they couldn't get them to catch fire. Right? Jesus, remember what Jesus said? These will be days unparalleled from when God created the world until the end of the world. It's going to be like nothing you've ever seen. But in all of the writings of what happened in Jerusalem, there's not one iota that one Christian was killed. Because the minute Titus showed up, the Christian community had this, and they said, it's time to go. And they left, and they went to a city— they went to a city up the the valley, kind of on the Jordan side, called Pella, the rock. And they hid out. They got, they got out of Dodge because Jesus said, listen, when this happens, you better go. Now, what does that mean for us, right? We need to be prepared for things to happen that look like kingdom of God failures, right? Like the Jewish temple where God dwelled got totally destroyed. What does that look like? That looks like God failing, right? God's temple gets totally destroyed. His people get massacred by these pagan Romans so that the Romans write in their annals, we could never have done this if God had not fought with us. And ironically, Jesus is saying God did because that was his hand of judgment. But that looks like a failure, a spiritual failure. But Jesus said it wasn't. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared for things to happen to the church, to some of the church's leaders, to places that we thought we were putting our faith in, all of a sudden they implode. And, and it's very easy for us to go, oh my gosh, where is God? He just disappeared. Maybe, or maybe the thing we respected was a den of robbers. We need to be prepared for things that look like God failures. We need to be open to the fact that they may not be. We also need to be encouraged by the fact that even though stuff like this is going to happen— Stuff like Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven is going to happen. And we need to be encouraged by the fact that even when we walk through this deal where we've got to run for our lives, or we've got to, we've got to hunker down, or we've got to be ready, or we've got to be a soldier for some period of time, that we know that this was coming. This sort of thing happens. And what is going to happen is there's going to be a Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven who is going to pull in everyone. He's going to send out his angels to bring everyone in. And that is much greater than any temple ever was. The great thing we're looking to isn't anything we can create or anything we look to in this world. It's something Jesus will do in the end, right? 
Okay, lastly and quickly, I'm going to just do this because I don't want to come back to this next week. Um, we also need to know what we don't know. That's the last thing. We need to know what we do know. We need to know, we need to know what the future might look like. We also need to know what we don't know. And, he, and here's why that's true. There's a, uh, some of you probably read the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's a business book. People, a lot of people in business management have read it. Um, there's, a, there's a section in it called the Stockdale Paradox. Have you ever heard of that? Stockdale Paradox? Okay. Um, hold on, I forgot his first name. Um, Admiral, his name is Admiral James Stockdale. He was a POW in Vietnam War for seven years. And later, uh, after he he got out, he reflected on his experience and, and why some people made it and some people didn't. And he said, he, he said here's, the th- here's the thing. In order to make it, you had to absolutely believe you were going to make it. And you had to absolutely believe that it was going to be the defining experience of your life. Okay? He said, but there were some people that would put a, a time when they would be delivered and that they used that as an encouragement. So they'd say, we're going to get out by Christmas. And they would use that to make it till Christmas, but then they didn't get out at Christmas. And they go, well, surely we'll be out by the New Year or by Easter or by Midsummer. And they'd, and they'd hold on and then they wouldn't get out. And he said, those are the people that broke. Those are the people every single time they broke because the disappointment— they kept focusing their hope and focusing their hope and focusing on their hope on what they thought they knew was going to happen, and then it didn't. And there was no reason it should have. And it, a couple of those, you, and it broke them. And, and here's the thing. Here's one of the reasons why prediction does the church no good. Okay? If we're watchmen, we're going to be ready. But if we keep saying, well, I, I can hold out a little longer— I'll just hold that a little longer because surely Jesus isn't going to make me suffer any more than this. Surely, surely he wouldn't expect me to live in a bad marriage more than 10 years. Surely, surely, you know, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a job after 24 months. Or surely there's a limit to this. And then you set that limit. It'll kill you. It will kill you. The minute you put a limit on how much temptation you can bear or how much suffering you can bear, you just, you just, can bet your bottom dollar it's going to kill you. And you're probably going to give in right before you would have been delivered. One of, the, one of the most insidious ways people manipulate other people is by telling them some conclusion is inevitable. Accept it. It's inevitable. Right? This technology, it's inevitable. This political movement, it's inevitable. This philosophical idea, it's inevitable. This business change, it's inevitable. It's the future. It's just what's going to happen. You just need to accept it just because of this. No. No, I don't. No, I don't. You might be wrong. I can choose to be a dinosaur. I don't have to accept anything. In fact, the minute somebody tells me that accepting something is inevitable, I turn them off. Because we just walked into you know, we just walked into um, Manipulationville is what just happened. And I don't like to live there. I don't have an address and I don't get mail. Okay? <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not playing. But, but that's, that is the nature of temptation. How many temptations have you experienced where you just felt like, I can't resist it anymore. I can't. I can't resist it anymore. Right? I can't tell you how many young men Come, I've talked to who have sexual addictions or pornography addictions or something like that. And one of the first things I tell them is, okay, the next time you have an incident, here's what's going to happen. You're going to feel the temptation kind of rising. And at some point, at some point, you're going to feel like it's impossible. 
you can't resist it. Your mind is going to tell you, you can't get, you, it's just, it's just going to be stronger and stronger and stronger. It's never going to end. I'm not going to be able to make it. I have to give in. And you need to realize that's not true. There's no reason you have to give in. That's, that's just false. And a watchman knows it's false. Because he knows, even though he knows what the future might bring, he knows he doesn't know all that the future is going to bring, and he's just going to hang in there and do his job. Now, here's the problem. There's those five things, and they're important to do, and, and we probably can't do them, right? We probably can't do it by ourselves. Who wants to go fight a war by themselves? I don't. You want to fight a war by yourself? You know, it says in a number of places in the New Testament, put to death— the sinful nature that's inside of you. Kill it. You got to kill it. You want to do that by yourself? You can't do it by yourself. You need other people to help you. Because somebody's got to watch your back, right? Somebody's got to see what you can't see. And I know I'm expanding the metaphor, but here's, here's what you really need. You need somebody who's fought the battle already. You need somebody who knows your enemy. You need somebody who's beaten your enemy before. And it's even better if it's somebody who's beaten your enemy for you before and can tell you how and give you the ability and strength to defeat that enemy again with his help. You need a commanding officer. And Jesus is the only one who not only was watchful for himself successfully all the way through, but fought a war on your behalf to give you the wisdom, the power, the strength, the ability, the opportunity to be delivered and to become watchful so that you can then take the role with his help of seeing that no one deceives you, of knowing that you're going to face suffering for the gospel's sake, of recognizing that there, there's, a, there's something about the future you can get in your head to make you more prepared and that you cannot be so locked into it that you're not ready for how things move because you know what you don't know. And it is only when you come to that commanding officer and you invite him in and you say, Jesus, I need, I am not watchful enough. I cannot be watchful enough. I need a commanding officer who knows my enemy, who can help me fight, who can give me the power, who can, who can free me from all the different worries, who can give me the kind of promise of life so that I'm not terrified of these other shiny things that are pulling for my attention and so that I can know that the thing that's most important is the eternal thing that is in you and that mainly is that day when you will come. Because Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So the first step in this is in some way to start with the invitation to Jesus and to his spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come in. Come into my psychology, into my heart, my soul, into everything that I am. Come and begin to reform and remake and make a soldier out of me. Make a soldier out of me. Because I want to make it. I want to make it to the end because it says those who make it to the end will what? They'll be saved. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, this passage. Thank you for what Jesus teaches in it. Thank you for whatever anybody in this room, me or anyone else, could take from it to strengthen us, to make us the kind of watchmen that we should be because we know that faithfulness, to be faithful is to be watchful. And um, God, we pray that you you would take away these shiny towers from us and that we would see you as the great object of our affection who is the eternal one and the truly great one. And then help us to enjoy all these other things as they are rather than as identities for us that will make us idolaters. So Jesus, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us. Change us. 
and make watchmen out of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.